0: Revelation 15 verse 5, the testimony of the tabernacle. So my goal today is to continue what we started last week. And also with Easter coming up, this is like my Easter message as well. So that's why we're staying with Revelation 15 today. And at the end, after we sing a couple more songs, I'm going to share a bit about repentance as well, because in chapter 16, it talks a lot about repentance and, or the lack of repentance, people not repenting of their sins. So I just pray then we'll get going. Father, thank you for the love that you have for us. Lord, the great mercy that you demonstrate toward us. Lord, that no matter what happens to us, we're always in your hands. We're always strong in you. So help us to be resting in you to put a hope in your word and to make the decision that when the hard times come we're going to stick with you we're going to walk with you and we're not going to turn away help us to make that decision before the hard times come so when they do come we know what we're going to do we've already counted the cost help us to do that in jesus name amen so the testimony of the tabernacle so i remember revelation 15 verse 5 it talked about In the heavenly temple of the tabernacle of testimony, it was opened. And we started talking about what the tabernacle testified of. So we're going to keep going on that. And the first scripture I want to read is Hebrews 9 1 5. It says, The first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. What was that? What's that place of worship? tabernacle, yeah. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. In the first room were a lampstand, a table, and sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. Then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain was the second room called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. In that room, were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with gold on all sides. Inside the Ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of divine glory, whose wings stretched out over the Ark's cover, the place of atonement. But we cannot explain these things in detail now. Well, we're going to go into a little bit of detail. <laughs> so, inside the box, what were there? Three things? Yep, the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod that batted, and the golden pot of manna. Yeah. So, why were they put there? Well, the remind us of our sin. They are a symbol of all the sin of mankind. So, the manna... The manna reminded Israel of God's provision and their ungratefulness. Aaron's rod reminded Israel of the rebellion against God's authority. And the tablets of the covenant reminded Israel of their failure to keep the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. So I just go through them one by one. The Ten Commandments, the two tablets of stone. As you know, Moses came down from the mountain with the two tablets of stone. And what did he see? What did he find? There was a golden calf, and all the people were having a big party around this golden calf. It's very ungodly. Just a complete rejection of God's law. And then, second, there was the pot of manna, the special food that God provided for the Israelites during the 40 years in the wilderness. It means, what is it? Okay, manna of it means, what is it? They woke up one day, saw something in the ground, said, what is it? And so it was called, what is it? For all this time. <laughs> For 40 years, they ate the same food. But at the very start, they complained that they didn't have enough variety and they wanted all the leeks and garlic and other vegetables and meat that they used to have in Egypt. So in their heart, so we go back to Egypt, back into carnality or worldliness, and they wanted what the world offered. So you could say that the pot of manna in the ark was a picture of man's rejection of God's provision. And remember, the manna in the New Testament is a picture or is a type of jesus the bread of life okay so we can take this a little bit further and say it's a picture of man's rejection of the word of life come down from heaven for us the bread of life and jesus says if we feed on him we will live forever and then there's aaron's rod that butted and that was when the camp rebelled against moses and aaron and their leadership and there was about to be like a Revolution. Okay, they're going to overthrow Moses and Aaron and their leadership like a coup. Um, So God told Moses to get all the leaders to come forward and stand before him and Aaron, and this is what happened. So I'm going to put Numbers 17 and uh, some selected verses, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to bring you 12 wooden staffs, one from each leader of Israel's 12 tribes and inscribe each leader's name on his staff. Inscribe Aaron's name on the staff of the tribe of Levi, for there must be one staff for the leader of each of the twelve tribes. Place these staffs in the tabernacle, in front of the ark containing the tablets of the covenant, where I meet with you. Buds will sprout on the staff belonging to the man I choose. Then I will finally put an end to the people's murmuring and complaining against you. Now, moving on to verse 8. When he went into the tabernacle of covenant the next day, he found that Aaron's staff, representing the tribe of Levi, had sprouted, budded, blossomed, and produced ripe almonds. Then going to verse 10. And the Lord said to Moses, Place Aaron's staff permanently before the Ark of the Covenant to serve as a warning to rebels. This should put an end to all their complaints against me and prevent any further deaths. So, Moses did as the Lord commanded him. So, basically, the rod that sprouted living leaves, blossom, and even ripe almonds can you imagine that? Dead stick producing this stuff it was God's confirmation that Aaron was the proper high priest and Levi was the tribe who was to have leadership over the nation. So, the three represented the sins of all mankind the rejection of God's provision, the rejection of God's authority, and the rejection of his law. But where were they? Where did they go? Into the Ark of the Covenant. On top of them were, or was the mercy seat, right? The mercy seat represents the propitiation for the sins of the nation of Israel and, and for us, our sins too. So basically, when the high priest put the blood on the golden mercy seat, he was covering all those sins for the nation of Israel for one year. That's a day of atonement. And so basically the wrath of God had been averted or turned away for one year for the nation of Israel. Now we move from the shadow or the type to the real thing, to the substance, right? The reality. When Jesus, after dying on the cross, put his own precious blood on the permanent glory seat in the heavenly tabernacle of the testimony, it meant that the payment or propitiation for the sins of all mankind had been paid. So Jesus' death on the cross averted or turned away the wrath of God, but not just for a year and not just for the nation of Israel, but for the whole world, unbelievers and, and believers alike. So that verse is 1st John chapter 2, 1 to 2. And it says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And from the New Living Translation it says, My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ the one who is truly righteous. Verse 2 is so awesome. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. So, we're talking about what's the tabernacle testifying of? What's its message? Well, he himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. That's a cool message, isn't it? Jesus, God, paid the price. He became the sacrifice, the payment for my sins, for your sins and the sins of the whole world. God knew that there was no other way for man to be saved than for he himself to pay a fine. So he did. Now, if you think back, he knew this even before he created the world. He did it to demonstrate his love. He created us knowing he was going to suffer for us. Because he knows all things, remember? And again, come back to the question we asked last week, why was the Temple of the Tabernacle of Testimony opened at this time? Because for those who reject God's provision of salvation, his gift of forgiveness, there is no other way to be saved, only a fearful expectation of judgment. And boy, it's a fearful expectation. (laughs) Next time we come together, we're going to go through the last seven bold judgments and the last seven judgments, which are called the bold judgments, and they are shocking. You wouldn't want to be a part of that. So, I want to just focus on one of the phrases now, and that's those who dwell on the earth. This is going to explain what the real purpose and rationale of the judgments in Revelation are, And why the unbelievers on earth really do deserve everything that is coming to them. Because you might start feeling sympathetic towards them as you see how bad it's going to be. So, those who dwell on the earth is a statement that describes those who are unbelievers. Okay, I'll put up its meaning. There's a Greek word that's really hard to pronounce, I'm not going to try. But it means someone who so identifies with the things of this earth that they possess him. Okay, it's one word, those who dwell on the earth, and it means someone who so identifies with the things of this world or the things of this earth that they possess him. And it's used seven times or in seven places. And so we're going to have a look at those and get an idea of the definition of an unbeliever. Okay, and why they are deserving of judgment. So the first one, Revelation 3.10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, this is Jesus talking to the church, I will also keep you from, or more accurately, out of the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So the hour of trial is, of course, the the tribulation. Okay? And the word "tests" there means to put them through a test that will reveal their true character. So these tests, one of the reasons that God puts the people on earth through these tests is to reveal what's in their heart. And notice here, and this is going back to what we did right back in chapter 3, a long time ago, <laughs> notice here that God not only promises to keep us out of the trial, but also from the time or the hour of the trial. So it's a clear promise that he will keep the church out of the tribulation. God is clearly saying that this judgment is not for the church, it's for those who dwell on the earth. Now the next one is Revelation 6.10. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So here are the tribulation saints. The Gentile tribulation saints who have been slaughtered, martyred. Who did it? It's not really a mystery. It tells us right here. Avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. So here we learn that those who dwell on the earth are the ones who are tortured and slaughtered God's people during the seven-year tribulation. The next one is Revelation chapter 8, verse 13. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying into the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, "Woe, woe, woe, to the inhabitants of the earth, and that's the same word. it means those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound, so the three woes, the three last trumpet judgments, and remember that the last trumpet judgment includes all the bold judgments are specifically against those who dwell." on the earth okay it's for the unbelievers not for the believers in other words this is the purpose of this horrible judgment that's coming the next one the fourth one is revelation chapter 11 verse 10 and it says and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth so Moses and Elijah, most likely the two prophets who minister for the first three and a half years. At the halfway point of the tribulation, God grants authority to the Antichrist to kill them. They lay on the ground, rotting for three and a half days. The breath of God comes back into them, they resurrect, and God says, come up here, and up they go to heaven. But what's the response of the people? They rejoice in the death of God's prophets. There is jubilation over the death. There's no pity. There's no remorse. This is how hard-hearted these unbelievers are. Okay, Those who dwell on the earth. And I'm just going to put that definition up again. Because this is important for us. Because if we start identifying with the things of the earth, we will start to be possessed by the things of the earth. And our attitude towards God and towards other believers will start to change. yeah. And now the next one, the fifth one, the fifth time that this phrase is used is in Revelation 13 verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, the Antichrist, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, notice first that it's not the names that have been written in the book from the foundation of the world, but rather it's the Lamb who has been slain from the foundation of the world. So that's what the Greek says. Okay, Jesus has been slain from the foundation of the world. This was God's plan from eternity past. The main point here is that none of those who are called, those who dwell on the earth, will have their names written in the book of life of the Lamb. The Lamb's book of life is one of two books in God's bookkeeping system. So you've got the Lamb's Book of Life and the Book of Life. So in the Book of Life everyone's name is in the Book of Life. When they die as an unsaved person their name is blotted out. However if at some time during their life they choose to believe then then name gets written into the book of life of the Lamb and it remains in the book of life. So it's in both books. So what do we learn from this? Those who dwell on the earth will worship the Antichrist. They will fall for him. They will be deceived. So if your name is not in the Lamb's book of life then you will be deceived by the Antichrist. There's only two options. Worship God or worship Satan. And the sixth one Revelation 13-14 this is about the false prophet who will totally deceive those who dwell on the earth. And it says, And he, the false prophet, deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Okay? So the false prophet performs signs in the presence of the Antichrist which deceive who? Not the believers, but those who dwell on the earth, those whose hearts are given to the things of the earth. And we went through Second Thessalonians chapter 2, a few weeks ago. Just read verses 9 to 11. This man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction. Did you hear that? He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. So God... Will cause them to be greatly deceived, and they will believe these lies. Then they will be condemned for enjoying evil rather than believing the truth. So, what are they condemned for? For enjoying evil, for enjoying this world. Okay. They're identifying themselves with this world, they're finding the satisfaction in this world. Okay. Those who dwell on the earth, the unbelievers. Now, the next one is Revelation 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. So I just spoke about the book of life and the Lamb's book of life. But here is something more interesting. adds a bit more information. It says these people who are still alive on the earth, their names are already blotted out of the book of life. Why would that be? Usually it's when you die, your name's blotted out. Like people have a deathbed conversion, like they're on their deathbed and they get converted. So they have until they die. But these people, I believe it's because they've taken the mark of the beast. We're in the second half of the tribulation here. And as soon as they take the mark of the beast, there's no more opportunity to be saved. And so the name is removed from the book of life. They're still alive, but there's no more opportunity for salvation for those people. And uh, I want to just read 1 John two fifteen to 17 It says, Do not love the world, cosmos, this world system, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Can you see the, the contrast there? Jesus said about mammon, you can either love God or you can love mammon, but you can't love both. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world, the world system. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So as I was saying, the word world, do not love the world, the world system, is the Greek word cosmos. And it doesn't just refer to the physical world, but also the world system. Okay? It looks at the world not so much as a place, but the very elaborate system that controls it, and all the things that are a part of this system. So God says to his children, Do not love the world system, the things of the world. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. Now, verse 15, because you might be thinking, Oh dear, you know, I go through stages where I love things in this world, I get caught up with the things of this world. But it's, listen to this. Verse 15 says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The word loves is in the present tense, meaning they're continuing to love the world. There's never been repentance. They've never stopped loving the world. They have never loved the Father. They don't have the love of the Father in them. And this is another way of referring to those who dwell on the earth. They are so ensnared by the things of the world that they have no time for God. And if you look at verse 16, it says, For all that is in the world, this world's system. So what is this system? Well, we have three things that really cause us to sin, and that is the lust of the flesh, and that is our craving for physical pleasure, the lust of the eyes, the craving for everything we see, and the pride of life, pride in our achievements and possessions. This is what we get caught up in. And none of those are of the Father, but they are of the World, that is the world system. So we need to be aware of these things and overcome them. So let's look at our love or desire for physical pleasures. And this could be chocolate, <laughs> it could be sugar, it could be food, it could be drugs, alcohol, sexual pleasures, touch, whatever pleases our physical senses. And for me, I think this is where fasting is really powerful. We are actively putting down our flesh. And this is what I think Paul was talking to when he said, I beat my body daily to bring it under subjection. says that in Corinthians somewhere. I can't remember where. We are actively putting down our flesh, resting control back from our sinful nature and keeping those desires in check. We can fast from anything, food, Facebook, TV, games, sport, you name it. Alcohol even. If anything seems to be becoming an idol, just get rid of it for a while and put it back in its place. If it's wrong, then get rid of it completely. Then there's the lust of the eyes, the craving for the things that we can see. This describes the I want mentality that advertisers play on so well. It could be beer, girls, or the latest sports car, or the latest phone, the latest horse, whatever. Our eyes see it, and we want it, yeah? Our eyes see it, and we want it. We covered it. Now, the easiest way to avoid these temptations is to avoid looking at those things. Get rid of the TV, disconnect the internet, and stay away from places where people don't dress modestly. And thirdly, this is pride of life. The pride we have in what we have achieved and possessed. How good I am. I call it the, hey, look at me, mentality. Hey, look at me, I'm so good. Look how much money I've got in the bank. Look at my position at work. Look at my achievements. Look how well I can play basketball. Look at this. Look at this. Look at me. Okay? It doesn't matter what it is, but these things can easily consume and control us. And I believe the best way to overcome these temptations is to realize just how temporary these things are and to remember the following verse. Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever leans on, trusts in, and puts his confidence in the Lord is safe and set on high. So, we are trying to impress people. is the pride of life. We're trying to impress people, trying to build ourselves up. Those things are going to go. Those things will fade. Those things will disappear real quick. Don't try and impress men. Impress God. Be a God-pleaser, not a man-pleaser. Now, why is the world system so dangerous? It's because of who controls it. Before I put the verse up, you tell me who controls the world system. Satan does, yeah. So it's one John five nineteen. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, Satan. So this is the battle. It's God versus Satan, okay? We have to be careful that we don't allow lives to be so taken by the things of this world that it crowds God out. Okay? Satan wants to crowd God out. To fill our mind with stuff so that we're not thinking about God. Now, what does he use to crowd God out? Well, it changes all the time. And this is one of the things which is frustrating if you're a person of the world. You think you've got what you want, but then you get what you want, and it's not what you want. Because now what you want is something different. (laughs) Yeah? i got a quote from Hal Lindsey. In my younger days, I kept trying to get where it was at, but when I got there, it was where it was. And Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So, now, repentance. Why is repentance important? What is repentance? And why should I repent? What's my motive? So that's what I want to finish talking about now, because in Revelation 16, which I'm not going to read today, but It continuously says, they refused to repent. And the result is judgment, if you don't repent. So we need to figure this thing out. What is repentance? And it's not an easy thing to talk about. You can say some glib things like, turn from your sin and turn to God. What does it mean to turn from your sin and turn to God? Is it just a change in behavior? Is it a change in attitude? What's going on? So let's have a look. So those three questions I'm going to try and answer today. Why is repentance important? What is repentance? And why should I repent? What's my motive? So the first question, is believing that Jesus died for my sins enough for me to go to heaven? And we're going to have a look at a verse that's going to give us the answer to that. So we're answering the question, is all I have to do to go to heaven just believe that Jesus died for my sins? Well, let's see what Jesus said about that. Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus makes it clear that we need to both repent and believe the gospel if we are going to be saved and go to heaven when we die. Jesus is saying that there are two things that are needed for a person to be saved. Repentance and belief. So what's the difference? Well, I'm going to use an analogy here. It's the aeroplane analogy, the parachute analogy, okay? Imagine there's two people. Let's call them Joe and Sam, okay? Now, Joe and Sam, they both know about parachutes, and they both have parachutes, right? They know that a parachute will save them if they jump out of the plane. Okay now they're on a plane the plane is about to crash they need to jump from the plane now despite them knowing that the parachute will save them and knowing how to put it on one of them chooses not to put it on that makes sense doesn't really make sense does it but that's what one does all right and the other person he does put it on so let's say Joe puts his parachute on and Sam doesn't, and then they jump out of the plane. They both have the same belief that the parachute could save them, but only one of them put the parachute on. So repentance is like putting on the parachute. A person may know and understand that Jesus is the payment for their sin. They might even believe that that's true, but unless they put on the Lord Jesus Christ and repent, they have not received God's gift of forgiveness. So I just want to emphasize this. I know it sounds strange, but this is what it's like for a person who dies knowing about Christ, but who never repented. They knew that Jesus died for their sins. They even believed that it was true. They believed in the existence of God. But they never bothered to receive the gift. As a result, one person goes to heaven and another person goes to hell. And now Jesus makes it really clear in Luke 13 verse 5, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And that's what's happening in Revelation chapter 16. The people who don't repent are perishing. So the word perish here means to not just die your heart stops beating. It will go to die unless you get raptured. <laughs> it's getting more and more of a chance as the days go on right now. But to perish means to remain separated from God forever in hell, the lake of fire, being in torment forever. And it's not just talking about physical death. So, to answer our first question, why is repentance important? Well, if I don't repent, then I will perish. Okay, that's why it's important. The only way to avoid being separated from God in the lake of fire is both to repent and believe. We need to understand how God saves us and then put our trust in that salvation. Does that make sense? You have to put your trust in it. Not just know that it's true, but you've got to trust that it's true. What is repentance? So, I know that I have to believe in Jesus' death on the cross and that his death on the cross was a payment for my sins. That's the the gospel, okay? But what does it mean to repent? This is our second question. And there's so much confusion over what this means in the life of a believer. So much so that the Bible says that many will think they are Christians and yet are not Christians true believers they are false converts they knew about the parish but never put it on So i'm just going to read matthew 7 21 23 and it says not everyone who calls out to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven only those who actually do the will of my father in heaven will enter on judgment when he will say to me lord lord we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles In your name, but I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. So here we have two groups of people, both who call themselves Christians. The first group are defined by those who do the will of my Father in heaven, and the other group is those who break God's laws. So we just went through Revelation and we've pulled out all the times that the phrase or the word those who dwell on the earth was used. Which group of people do these fit into? You who break God's laws or you who actually do the will of my Father in heaven? Okay? They're living to please themselves. All right? So we have the contrast. And this is a key thing for repentance, right? This is the external, what you see in a person and what their motive is for living. I either live for myself, doing what I want, pleasing myself no matter what the cost. I will go to extremes to get what I want, to get to please myself. And people do that. You see that all over the place. People go to extremes to satisfy themselves, to achieve satisfaction, looking for happiness. Then there's the other, where you live for Jesus. You do what Jesus wants. You want to please him, again no matter what the cost. You go to extremes for God. And that's what the disciples did, remember? The apostles? They were extreme in their faith, and that's what God wants from us too. So, it's pretty basic, but remember, going to church and calling yourself a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. Just like living in a cage and dressing up like a bird doesn't make you a bird. Only those who actually repent and believe are truly saved and are going to heaven. So what does it mean to repent? Here's a few more clues that the Bible gives us. Yes, I'm sending you to the Gentiles, to, this is Jesus talking to Paul, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. Notice, set apart by what? trust, faith. Put on the parachute. So Notice that repentance here is described as a turning from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. This is being born again, right? Where you go from being Satan's kingdom to God's kingdom, darkness to light. You're turning from a life ruled by Satan and his sinful desires to a life of light that is ruled by God, a life that pleases God. And also notice I've put it in bold on the screen. There is the word then, okay. So open their eyes, so they may turn from darkness to light, and from the parasite to God. That's repentance. Then they will receive forgiveness. So forgiveness only comes after repentance, okay? Of this decision to repent. Now, what does it look like? I'm going to explain this, all right? What repentance is. So here's some pictures of what repentance is. Luke. A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, what does it say? You cannot be my disciple. You cannot be a part of the kingdom of God. You cannot go to heaven if you don't put me first. So, what does repentance look like? It means you put in God first. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. So, a couple of examples here. The rich young ruler. The rich young ruler approached Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to be saved or to enter heaven? And they had this conversation. And then Jesus says to him, knowing that he had this love of money, he says, Go sell everything you have. And come, follow me. And the man, the rich young ruler, he couldn't do it. Now why not? Because his God was his money. And he was not willing to make Jesus the first priority in his life. He was not willing to love his money less than he loved God. So, some questions here about this. Did the rich young ruler put Jesus first? No. Could he be a disciple of Jesus? No. Was he saved? No. Is he going to heaven or hell when he dies? Hell. Okay. Why? Because he didn't repent. He didn't choose to make God number one. Now, example number two. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the thief. He wanted to see Jesus. Jesus said, look, I'll go around to your house for lunch. The people said, what are you doing with it? Associating with a sinner like that. But Zacchaeus repented. He said, I will give back all the money I've stolen plus some and I'll give money to the poor. Okay. So, did Zacchaeus choose to put Jesus first? Yes. Could he now be a disciple of Jesus? Yes. Was he saved? Yes, and Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. I love those words. Salvation has come to this house. Is he going to heaven or hell when he dies? Heaven, yeah. So what's the difference? The only difference between these guys, both in contact with Jesus, both interested in eternal life, was that one was willing to put God first, and one wasn't. So here's some more examples of what repentance looks like. So this is Luke fourteen twenty seven and if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. So carry your own cross means persecution, alright? A believer can expect to have some hard times because they choose to follow Jesus. It's called persecution. So example a Muslim who comes to Christ, what would happen to them in a Muslim country, right? In many countries they are kicked out of their family, treated as if dead, Mocked, they lose their job, they go hungry, they're beaten, and often they're killed. Like in Indonesia, a UN food, I heard a report there, where a lot of the Christians don't get food because it's given preferentially to the Muslims. Okay, If you're Muslim, you get the food from the UN, but if you're a Christian, you don't get any. I'm not saying it's the UN's fault, it's the, the way things are in Indonesia. So what about us in Australia for us it could mean losing friends it could mean be being laughed at it could mean be not being able to go to the parties having to say no to our families when our families want us to do something that is not of God So another picture of what it means to repent and become a disciple of Christ is counting the cost which means quite simply am i willing to forsake all So Luke 14:28 and 33 for which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. So obviously you're not going to start building a house until you've got all the money. Otherwise you get half finished and it's incomplete. You haven't done anything. There's no house. There's nothing to show for it. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all, willing to give up everything that he has, cannot be my disciple. Okay. So you've got to count the cost you got to know you're going to go all the way, okay? So this idea that to receive the new life God has for us involves leaving the old life behind is really important, okay? So to receive the new life, we need to leave the old life behind. I've got a couple of examples to help us understand this, right? So changing sports. Let's say you play footy on a Saturday. And I say... Well, how would you like to do gymnastics instead? I'll pay all your fees. I'll buy a uniform. I'll even give you food, accommodation, clothing, a scholarship for school. All your needs will be provided if you come to gymnastics. And you say, oh, that sounds pretty good. But the problem is, football is also on a Saturday. So to come across to gymnastics from football, what we have to do? You have to give up the football. You can't do both. You can only play one sport at the same time, right? You have to forsake the football completely to go to gymnastics. Or you forsake the gymnastics to play football. It's one or the other. Okay, It's forsake all. And moving house, if I say, all right, I've got a brand new house in Perth with a car in the driveway. There's a job up there for you as well. There's money in the bank to buy food. Everything you need is there. But you can't take anything with you. So if you choose to move, what are you leaving behind? <laughs> everything. You're leaving your friends behind. You're leaving your house behind. You're leaving your job behind. You're leaving everything you know behind. Okay? You've got to count the cost. It's the idea of this forsaking all many people have had to do that. Now, it doesn't mean that we, as soon as you can become a Christian, you've got to give everything up. But you need to be willing to give everything up because there will come a time when God will ask you to give something up, not because he's trying to make you miserable, but because he wants to give you the opportunity to find that what you actually need is in him. All right. Another picture of repentance is making Jesus the Lord, a master of your life. So Romans 10 verse 9, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, And that word Lord there means owner or master. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So notice the word and. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, owner or master, and believe in your heart, that's the gospel, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay? So the word Lord means owner or the boss. So this is our picture of repentance, another picture of repentance. So in addition to understanding that Jesus' death takes care of my sin problem, I have to make the decision to openly declare that Jesus is not just the boss of the world, but he is the boss of me. He owns me. Okay? I choose to make Jesus my master and I will be his slave. I live to please God. God doesn't exist to please or serve me, as the prosperity doctrine tells us. The prosperity gospel tells us that we go to God to get what we want. But no, true repentance is coming to God so we can do what He wants. So all these pictures are really the same thing, but just from different angles. Okay, But it just gives us a greater understanding of what it looks like to repent. But now we come to the most important question. And this is where a lot of people, I think, get caught up and get confused. Why? Should I repent? What is my motive? What would make me want to give up everything for Jesus? And this is where we get the true and false conversion because it all comes down to your motives. Why are you having this change of behavior? Are you trying to impress somebody or is it real? Okay. There's some people who go to church and, oh, there's a nice girl. I'm going to pretend to be a Christian. I'm going to stop going to the nightclub so I can get this girl. <laughs> when they get married, they go back to the old way of life, you know. The girl's going, oh, but I thought you're a Christian, you went to church. Oh, yeah, it's only so you like me. (laughs) So wrong motive, yeah? Change of behavior, but no true repentance. So what is our motive for repenting? What is the only real motive, the only motive accepted by God for repentance? Well, it's Romans chapter 2 verse 4 and it says, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? So I read that again. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to to turn you from your sin. Now the Amplified Version makes this very clear. Romans 2 verse 4 from the Amplified Bible. Or are you so blind as to trifle with and presume upon and despise and underestimate the wealth of his kindness and forbearance and long-suffering patience? Are you unmindful or actually ignorant of the fact that God's Kindness is intended to lead you to repent. To change your mind and inner man to accept God's will. Now what a wonderful definition of repentance there. Okay. The motive that we come to God with is God's done so much for me. I'm thankful. I'll do anything for him. God's gone all the way for me. He's demonstrated that he'll do anything for me. So I'm Ingratitude will do anything for him. It is my response to his love for me. My response to God is in response to his love for me. so I'm going to read that Romans two four amplify amplified again And think of this with the Revelation chapter sixteen, when we get there, these people are presuming they're underestimating God's patience and his kindness and forbearance. And they're ignorant of the fact that God's kindness is intending to lead them to repent. Okay, and they don't repent. But we need to recognize that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. I just read the last part of it. Are you unmindful or actually ignorant of the fact that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repent, to change your mind and inner man to accept God's will? Okay to change your mind and in man to accept God's will. Does that fit with what we just read about what repentance looks like in those other passages? Yeah. Now, something I want to talk about now is this idea of being a bondservant. And in Romans 1 verse 1, Paul introduces himself as a bondservant or slave of Christ. And so does Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 1, he says, Simon Peter, a bondservant or slave an apostle of Jesus Christ. So, Peter and Paul and others introduced themselves as bondservants of Jesus Christ. And this word bondservant is the answer to a question of what is true repentance, okay? So, let's have a look and see what it means. A bondservant is explained in the Old Testament. Poor people would sell themselves to another family as a slave so that they would have food, clothing, and someone to live in exchange for work. Every seven years the Israelite slaves would be set free. But sometimes the slave would grow to love the family he served so much that he wouldn't want to leave the family. He could make the decision to remain as a slave or servant of that family for the rest of his life. Forever. Okay? That family would then become responsible for looking after him. And this is how it works. So I'm going to put Exodus twenty one five to six. This is the procedure. But the slave may declare, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I don't want to go free. If he does this, his master must present him before God. Then his master must take him to the door or doorpost and publicly pierce his ear with an awl. After that, the slave will serve his master for life. So, a bond servant is someone who has his ear pierced with an awl. He's got a hole in his ear. It's a physical sign of an inward change, yeah? Make sense? The slave goes through this pain of getting his ear pierced with an awl, a big hole, not a little hole, because he loves his master. He says, I love my master. I don't want to go free. I want to serve my master. So, this is what it means to be a bondservant. It's a slave who loves his master so much he doesn't want to leave. I've got a definition here. A bondservant is a willing slave. A willing slave. He will serve that family not because he is forced to, but because he wants to. Now, for the child of God who is walking with God, it's not I got to, but I get to serve God. Now, Jesus is the ultimate example. Jesus was a bondservant to the Father, and if you read Psalm 40 verses 6 to 8 in there it says my ears you have opened and many people take that to mean that jesus presented himself as a willing servant to the father a slave for life and that his ears were open as in pierced actually that word can be translated as pierced my ears you have pierced also jesus did and said only what the father showed him told him to do and say what to do and say so here's our example So, John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So, what's repentance? It's giving up our will for God's will. Now, John 8.29 says, For I, Jesus, always do what pleases the Father. Okay? I always do what pleases the Father. Now, why did he do this? Well, if you go back to Psalm 40, it says, for I delight to do your will. Why did he delight to do your will? Because he was a servant. He was a servant. He loved the Father, therefore he delighted to do his will. And that's why Jesus said in John 8.29, I always do those things that please the Father. So, what do these verses tell us about Jesus? John 6.38 Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and I always do what pleases him, the Father. What do they tell us about Jesus? Who did he put first? Father, yeah. Now, if we want to know from the New Testament what Jesus' motive was, we can read John fifteen nine to 11 I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. So notice verse 10 there. It says, When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. You experience a love relationship with me. Just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. So there we have it. It's all about love. And the response is, joy you'll be filled with joy so just to finish with a couple of verses why god is worthy of our love why should we love god romans 5 8, but god demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners christ died for us now it goes on to say but god demonstrates his own love toward us in that why we're still sinners christ died for us would you die for someone else some he didn't like, some he didn't love. No one would, but God did it for us. God sacrificed Himself while we still hated Him. Now I'm going to just finish with Titus, three three to eight. And it says, "Once we too were foolish and disobedient, we were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures." Now we went through that before, didn't we? That's what. Those who dwell on the earth represents you, slaves to lust and pleasures of the world. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. But when God, our Savior, revealed His kindness and love, He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. We did not deserve this. He washed away our sins. So these are reasons why God is worth loving. He is worthy of our love, and it makes sense to love Him. He is someone who is worthy of and worth loving. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. So how many things are there? He saved us. He washed us, washed away our sins. New birth. New life. Germany poured out the Holy Spirit. That's five so far. Verse 7, because of his grace, he made us right in his sight. Justification. Declared innocent. And then the seventh one is he gave us confidence that we inherit eternal life. So God is worthy of our love. He's worthy of our worship. That's why we repent. When we understand who God is and what he's done for us, we say thank you. We return his love. And we choose to put him first because we want to. We become a bond servant in our heart. So, conclusion, if Jesus is not your Lord or Master, then he is not your Savior. Jesus only becomes our Master or our Savior when we understand the Gospel and realize that he loves us and we choose to return his love. So, true repentance must be motivated by my love for Jesus. It must start in my heart because of my understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done for me first. The change in my life is because I want to, because I love him, I'm a bondservant of Jesus. And I just want to go back to that Romans verse. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Father, I thank you. Lord, it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. Lord, you have done so much for us. And if we truly understand that, if we respond to that love, then we will be saved. And that's what repentance is. It's responding in love to what you've already done for us. And as your word says, we love him because he first loved us. And so when we choose to respond to your love, to enter into relationship with you, then we want to please you and we are saved when we understand what you've done for us on the cross. Because becoming a disciple means forsaking all. It means putting you first. And the only way we're going to have the strength or the motivation to do that is if we have a greater love. Lord, may our love for you always be greater than our love for the world. And so we'll always follow you with our whole heart and serve you with everything that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.